iTunes presents Meet the Filmmaker at the Apple Store. Good evening, Apple Store Soho. How are we all doing tonight? There we go. There we go. Nice. Taking it. So this is a very exciting time for us. It's Tribeca, as always. Who was here for the previous event? Anybody here from the previous event? Got some twofers. Sweet. Who was here for the event before that? Do we have threefers? Amazing. Good to see. Good to see. Well, this one, just as much fun, if not more. I've been waiting for this one uh, almost all week. I'm very excited for this one, personally. Uh, like I said earlier, a lot of events going on with Tribeca. We've partnered up with a group called IndieWire. And to actually talk to that a little bit, we have a good friend from IndieWire. Basil is going to come up. So a warm round of applause for Basil from IndieWire, guys. Hi, everyone. Thanks. Um, so we are very happy to have so many people here for this, uh, this third event tonight. Um, we are doing events all through the rest of the week and, and through Sunday, which is the wrap-up of Tribeca. Uh, tonight's uh, tonight's uh, was the third. Um, we have two or three usually each night, so check out our website, IndieWire.com, as well as uh, Apple Store Soho's website to find out more about what other panels are coming up, uh, film talks are coming up. Um, quick word about what IndieWire is. IndieWire is a, a film, uh, a site, a uh, website that's uh, focused on independent film. Uh, we do dispatches from film festivals, film reviews, uh, box office reports, all sorts of things. So check it out, IndieWire.com. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Tomas Balmez and this evening's guest moderator, Eugene Hernandez of IndieWire. Thank you. Thanks for being here. There's a couple of seats up here if folks want to sit down. Come on up. Tomas, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. I had, the, I had the pleasure of seeing your film a couple of days ago. I want to congratulate you on it. Thank you. Um, if you enjoyed the trailer, uh, you're halfway there. I think you really enjoy the film. Uh, it opens in May. I just forgot the date. So someone off May the... 7th. May 7th. May 7th. Coming soon. So um, well, I want to ask you a bit about making this movie and how it came about. But um, why don't we start with how you came up with the idea for it before I ask you how you cast it. Uh, but where did the concept come from? So the concept comes from uh, Alain Chabat, who is a famous friend, director, actor, and producer, who contacted me through his company a few years ago, like nights 2005, so almost five years ago. And for one year, we've been working together on trying to, to work on how I could feel happier working on such a subject. And what was great is like he was really keen on letting me treat it the way I wanted it to be treated, which is very unusual nowadays because most of the documentaries which are being produced for theater's release are entirely scripted and don't leave that much freedom in the treatment. And what I really liked is uh, the possibility to do what I would describe as maybe the most basic documentary filmmaking you can do. Uh, pure observation, absolutely no script, but just very strong uh, ways of filming and very, uh, very strong uh, uh, ways of just like avoiding narration, avoiding anything which would be something other than the pictures themselves. So it's not something entirely um, objective, it's totally subjective, but uh, the subjectiveness from my point of view and from the framing and from the editing, but it's a very open film. And it's not only a film about babies. I think there are many other things you can read in it. And th this is kind of very exciting to have like such a wide release and to me almost such an experimental project. Yeah, I mean, the babies in the film are really just an entree into a, uh, into a whole different 
perspective or perhaps a challenge to your perspectives on uh, socio-political issues and society in general and watching these four kids from these four different parts of the world growing up certainly raises a lot of questions about um, the way people live, the way people are born, the way people die. Um, you, you exactly say the right word, and this is perfect. It's raising questions, which is like, unfortunately, what very few documentaries nowadays do. I've got a big problems with as a kind of confusion of what the people are expecting from documentaries and what they have become more and more, which is uh, pretending to give ans answers. Uh, and the more it goes, the more that this is taking all the space for documentary filmmaking when, to me, the basic uh, definition of a documentary is to raise questions. And so I don't have any, any other ambition while filmmaking than just raising a few questions among the viewers. Uh, and um, hopefully, after promoting this film for a few weeks now, uh, it works well. And uh, uh, depending on where you look at it, uh, you have like, very different kind of questions which come up. So um, I just wanted to, to not compare too much and not be judgmental or not just like fantasize or romanticize or exoticize any per specific culture and all the different countries I picked up don't really represent uh, these countries in specific, specific, special, like the American family is living in San Francisco, but I'm not sure that especially American, you know, they could be French or they could be, anyway, I recognize myself as the father in the way the father is parenting also there. The same thing I recognize myself in, in the Japanese dad when he's taking care of his baby in the same time, uh, giving a phone call and doing like, 10 times, 10 things in the same time. So uh, the, the whole idea was to, to try to find four countries which were um, developed differently and have different kind of relationship with modernity and all these tools we are surrounded by in our Western way of living from the Namibian desert to Mongolia, which has a bit more connection with our Western way of living to uh, America and then the final uh, country, which is Japan, which uh, I felt any time I've been in Japan was a kind of uh, science fiction atmosphere, and you could be in, uh, in Blade Runner when you're in the center of Tokyo, and when babies have been broke there in such small spaces, and every time they go out, they're like surrounded by screens and, and uh, speakers in the streets, and like, uh, so uh, I was really more into that different environment than specifically speaking of each country or each culture. Okay, so let, let me ask you to explain in depth how you came about finding these individual babies and how you, I mean, how do you cast, um, cast a role at, at such a young age and how did you, um, you, you obviously had to decide the places you were going to shoot. So the um, first casting were the countries. So after I picked up these four countries and I'd been working in three of them, so I, I knew a lot and I was sure that this would be the, the, the good ones. The only one I didn't know was Namibia and... Uh, very quickly, uh, I, I remembered a film I'd seen a long time ago about this Imba tribe, and I knew this would be the place. Um, then later on, in each country, we organized, like for any feature films or some documentaries, a real casting, like having like in some countries like four, three hundred families being casted. Uh, and after a first round of casting, I was showing up and just like uh, spending a few hours or a few days with each family. Uh, and the commitment uh, we were expecting from them was kind of tough. 
I would myself, and I got a baby on the process of doing that film, which could have been perfect and could have been one of the four. But we spoke a little bit with my wife and we very quickly said, no way, you know? Even me being there doing that was too intrusive. So can you imagine having a family accepting to have a, a French guy in his uh, living room for like such a long time in so intimate moments, you know? So it was much more difficult in a way to find people who would agree on being in that story both in Japan and America. The casting was quite easy in Namibia and Mongolia. We had like technical things, like finding the right locations. But after a while, we, we could find very easily people who were really keen on the project. Finding people accepting to have me being there in between 12 months and 18 months regularly uh, on so many hours in their life was much more complicated. But we, we've been lucky and we find two great families. Why was it easier in Namibia and... Mongolia because it's a very basic thing you know when you are like physically in a 30 square meters apartment mm. for like 10 hours shooting you are much more disturbing than when you're like outside in the field in the steppe of uh, Mongolia and when the parents are busy milking the cow or living their life and anyway the kid will be by himself so you are almost helping them babysitting their kids you are not disturbing at all their privacy you know I'm curious, before I ask you more about the casting process, because I want to follow up on that, um, I'm just thinking about something that um, I was listening to a Q&A with Albert Maisels some time ago, and someone asked, someone asked him about this idea of verite filmmaking being like a fly on the wall, that you're just kind of, you know, it, almost as if the camera is invisible. Um, but he disputes that idea, and he says it's more like you're the fly in the ointment, that, that you automatically disturb the process or you have an impact or an influence over whatever you're filming and that's part of just the reality of making movies and yet at the same time he talks about how um, he doesn't think that that the camera necessarily affects people's behavior what what did you find in making this movie in the way you did and observing you know for hours how many hours of, of observation so, time uh, basically I've been filming for 400 days at the end of the shooting I had like 400 hours of rushes uh, so, you know, the ratio is quite small, um, but um, I totally agree with Albert Maisel, uh, who I'm a big fan of his work, and I think he's a fantastic filmmaker. So what kind but, of influence do you think that your camera had on these families or on the kids themselves, well, if at all? Uh, well, or the animals depicted? Uh, this is, uh, the animals, I'm not sure we influenced <laughs> them that much, but you have to understand that these babies, uh, unless like anyone else, they were born with having a film crew around them since their very first moments on Earth. So they have been used to that. So we were very, very little disturbing for them. Um, in fact, the film, in, the film is ending at a moment where they took conscious that we were here. And it's very interesting. It was one option, one option in finishing the film with that. I've got, I've got four shots of the four babies when they're like in between 18 months or 19 months, suddenly looking at me and realizing there is a lens and there is a guy behind the lens and this is not maybe totally natural, you know? But before that moment, I was like totally there without disturbing and I've got very few eye contact with them. Uh, and the parents, as you see in the film, are very, very little present. When they are there, you, you can see their legs or their arms, but very, very unusually, you can see their whole body. Uh, this was really the idea is just to shift the, the point of view from an adult perspective to the baby's perspective and reframe 
Uh, and one of the references uh, I brought up uh, developing the films was Elliot Erwitz's series he's been doing on, on dogs. I don't know if you remember that. He's been shooting dogs, especially here in New York, and he's got fantastic photos where he's on the level of the dogs and you have like only legs of adults. And I, I thought this was a great thing to do. And most of the shots have been really uh, shot from really low level and, and really having very little uh, adult presence in it. So, if, of course, we've been influencing the parents, but then not so much in the frame, so it's not such a big deal. So let me ask you to describe specifically what a, speci what a shot might have looked like as you're composing it. Um, describe to me what, uh, who's in the room, and we're going to take a look at a clip in a moment, but describe to me uh, how many people are in the room, what kind of camera you're using, how you're positioning yeah. yourself in, in, in a space in order to, to and, and how much time you just, are you just turning the camera on and walking away? How never, are you, how are you controlling never, this? never have left the camera by itself. This is something I would not even consider. You know, like I'm not dogmatic, but this is really something which doesn't seem possible for me. Uh, but uh, basically, uh, if you look at the framing, you only have very, very few close-up, mm -hmm. very, very few. In the all of the film, you maybe have like 10 or 20. Uh, it was most of the time white shots, mm -hmm. and I, I, I wanted to be able to get the goat who is going to go and take the, the, drink the water from the bath. To, to, we, we needed to see the goat arriving. We needed to see the different actions happening. And film after film, uh, and it's been like 20 years I'm doing documentaries, you're really trusting more on reality to give you gifts like that, you know? And it does. Uh, and it does, it and it's does. fascinating. What is very difficult is to find people who are trusting on this reality to, to come, you know? Uh, and I'm speaking there both about producers, about studio, about everything, which makes the average of the documentaries usually very far away from reality. And you have narration, and you have archives, and you have like you know, interviews, and you have like many things which have nothing to do with real documentary to me. So uh, the great thing here is I was a bill and I had like a lot of backup from the production to really wait and come back after two weeks or three weeks of shooting with like 10 hours of rushes, but with one shot I knew I would use, only one, you know? So really to have like uh, someone like Alain Chabat on this project backing you up when you come back from three weeks shooting and having one shot and being still happy, is, is unusual, you know? But at the end, I knew it would be in the film and it is in the film. So it was very, I knew exactly what I wanted. I wanted something which could be almost speaking by itself, which would have almost a beginning, a middle and end. The core of the film and the specificity of the film are these long shots. I would say hopefully 70, 80% of the film is only that. Then we have like small moments where, which are a bit quicker with more editing, uh, which are like connecting to all of these moments. But what makes the film exceptional to me is this kind of long shot. You have like an explanation, uh, demonstration in the clips, in the trailer, sorry, at the beginning and the end. This is exactly what I was looking for. And this is unscriptable, this is unimaginable, this is, this is to me the best definition of documentary filmmaking and observation. So in the, in the scene that we saw at the beginning of the trailer and you have the two boys sitting together, um, uh, one's playing with a bottle, a plastic two bottle. Two girls. Two girls, sorry. sorry. <laughs> sorry. Uh, describe to me the... Okay, so sh tell me what that scene looked like from your perspective. Where, well, how many people I'm, are on that? I'm on the frame of the door of a and small... How close are you? Like um, three meters. But this, I could be like 20 meters. I could be close. I could be far away, depending on the situation. Sometimes uh, I was very close because uh, the hut they were living in was very small. 
and I could really be very close, especially when the when she's just born. You have some scenes where she's just looking after her or like breastfeeding her, and I'm really close. But other time, I was trying to be kind of far away and letting her play and uh, running everywhere. And, uh, and to be able to follow her, I needed to be far away. You know, so it was difficult. There is no rule, but um, in that scene. Uh, just for this kind of trip, I by myself, and I have an assistant to help me to do the as a focus, a focus puller, because uh, as soon as I became a bit older, I couldn't do the focus by myself because they were running so much and so quickly that using like really cinema lens, we, I couldn't do the focus by myself. But for a long time, I did the focus by myself, and sometimes was even alone doing some filming. And then uh, sometimes I had some sound engineer. Sometimes I could have local people like uh, Himba a woman uh, helping me with uh, the boom and uh, doing the sound recording. And I love that, and I've always done that in all of my films, trying to save money on this kind of thing to be able to, to spend more time instead of like having a local French crew coming with me that I would have to pay every day, which, uh, which is always at the end, I think. You can feel in the film that we took the time we needed to do the film. And to do that, you need really to be looking after the way it's being produced. And by doing that, you need to really save all the money you can to be able to have time. Uh, so I'm always executive producer or uh, associate producer of all the film I'm doing because I, I do see a very strong connection in between the way a film is being produced as it what it can be artistically. I think it's worth repeating that um, I think the power of the film comes from the long takes. Uh, you know, you, you have, don't have it there. You don't feel it here, but, but to have a scene much longer in the know, film. Sorry, the scene with uh, the banana. banana. I mean, it literally starts from an unpeeled banana, banana, and she's peeling it. I mean, she's already learned how to peel a banana, and then bites into a piece of something that she doesn't want in her mouth and takes it out. And it's a, it's just that um, that length of that scene, and, the, and you, you're you know, you're, it's a careful rhythm you have to strike, obviously, and how long to let the scene go. This, this has been very complicated, and uh, after a while, the problem is like, uh, I kind of lost this distance with the material, you know, and like uh, being myself behind the camera so much and in the editing room, at one stage, uh, it was very complicated to get the right timing in between the long shot and this um, structural thing, and I've been amazingly lucky that uh, James Chambers from Focus Features arrived at the rough cut and proposed that we would keep on working with an American editor and w w working with Craig McKay, who has been working with Jonathan Demi, doing like very different films like Silence of the Lamb and uh, things you would be very surprised to think of, like uh, knowing he's been editing babies, helped us to really, I feel like trying exactly the best uh, compromise in between these long shots and something which was like moving forward and from beginning to end. It's been a fascinating uh, process of working with him. You mentioned James Seamus, he's the head of Focus Features, which is the company releasing the film, and they got involved at an earlier stage, maybe a year ago, something like exactly. that. Exactly. Uh, very, very different stages, and is not only distributing the film, but really being very helpful, very helpful and trying to, to solve all these uh, editing things. and very supportive also in a human way and it's a fantastic person uh, and uh, James really is a filmmaker himself he's a filmmaker himself he's a teacher he's a writer he's a scriptwriter he's amazing yeah. so um, tell me about how this version might be different if at all from other versions that you I mean the film doesn't have narration so yeah. I mean it, it literally can play 
um, anywhere. In, there is in, only anywhere. one version. And it's very unusual because all the kind of big documentaries which are like being released all over the world, like this one, do have many different versions, like uh, wing, migration wings or like oceans or any, all of them uh, do have like a French version, American version, and maybe an international version. This film has exactly the same version, which is going to be released everywhere exactly in the same way, with the same music and same titles. Everything will be the same, which is. Notice that you have an iPhone app as well. Yeah, yeah, I just um, discovered I just that, that recently. <laughs> there is a baby's iPhone app, which reminds you to take pictures of your babies daily. <laughs> so, tell me more about your own background. You've talked about some of the other films you've worked on, but where, first of all, where did you where did you study filmmaking, or how did you become I a filmmaker? I studied filmmaking in a French school called ISEC, which uh, I made um, when I was 19, and I started my own company when I was 21. Uh, really with always the idea of like being totally by myself, being able to control every aspect of the production to the equipment, being able to film by myself, to edit by myself, to have the equipment by myself, just to be able to spend the time I would need to do uh, what I wanted. Uh, I, as I was telling you, I've always been really concerned about this production aspect of the documentary filmmaking, really feeling that the kind of image that people had from documentaries was totally wrong. And uh, I really wanted to be able to decide which was the case for that film. You know, at one stage I had been spending one year of filming and I felt we needed another year. And uh, I spoke to, to to Alain and uh, Shaban Stuyakanal about that, and me being the ex executive producers, and we, we, we made it possible to, have, to extend all of the filming from one year to two years almost, you know? And you cannot do that if you are not the executive producer of a film. So I've always been content about that, and I started my company being 21, starting to do documentaries on Michelangelo Antonioni, not knowing yet if I wanted to be in the feature film or in the documentaries, so it was a very good school for me to to be there and also doing another documentary on James Avery. Uh, after these two documentaries, I started a kind of uh, what I would call the trilogy of uh, reversal anthropology, uh, doing a film in uh, Kenya uh, about the Bosnia war seen through the eyes of Maasai warriors who had been sent to Bosnia for uh, UN peacekeepers force uh, as blue elements and hearing them telling me about their experience of, in that world where no one explained to them what was going on in between the Bosnians and the Serbians and the, and the other tr people fighting one with another. And it's kind of exactly the same idea that I kept on doing film after film, of shifting the angles, shifting the perspectives on how we are looking at the world, at the different things culturally, religiously, and uh, economically. Uh, I kept on with uh, a film in India called called Maharaja Burger, which is following uh, the belief of the holy cow in India in perspective with the mad cow crisis in England. And hearing Hindus speaking to me about what it meant for them to hear that millions of cows would be killed because of, of the mad cow disease, when for them every cow contains all their gods. So uh, then I kept on doing uh, the end of that trilogy called the gospel according to the Papuan, and then for three years I've been following the conversion of a tribe in Papua New Guinea and hearing and filming some old uh, traditional uh, um, Papuan chiefs being converted to Christianity uh, by some missionaries who were like promising the, to them the, the end of the world or like scaring them by telling them it would be the end of the world soon and they should forget about polygamy, they should destroy the ancestors' house and build churches and get baptized 
And uh, so I've been following the whole process of the conversion and then the expectations and, the, and how nothing happened in the year 2000 and everything which happened later on. It's a kind of incredible story, I have to say. Um, so you see, this was the end of kind of like my first 10 years of working, uh, I must say. And then there is another kind of period after the success of this film, which quite uh, was being played all over, all over the world and being booked by many channels. I, I started to add some proposals from uh, different commissioning editors, and I did a documentary about Nokia. Uh, following uh, an assessment of a factory in China uh, to check what were the social conditions of some Chinese workers who were being paid below the minimum Chinese wage, which was $2 per day, and uh, to see how a Western company was trying to save a few cents on these wages. Uh, this film has been released in, uh, in the States in theaters. Um, it was here in New York in the Film Forum, and it's still playing in a few places. Um, and it's quite interesting also and very different from what I'd done before. And then just before Babies, I had the time to do another film called uh, The Mages, uh, uh, where I've been following uh, a law firm in Connecticut who is uh, dealing with putting a value on people who died from wrongful death. And this is uh, another, another fascinating aspect of the American culture is how they're going to analyze who you were, how much you were earning, what was your kind of relationship with your wife, if you were a good father, a good lover, a good, uh, a good husband, if you were like loaning uh, your garden every... And they're going to put a value on all these lines and compensate uh, uh, your widow from that uh, money. And it's, I've been following that for a year. Um, and, um, and then I've done babies. So you see, it's difficult to describe uh, my work in kind of a very strict aspect. But the shifting of perspective and trying to look at things from a different angle, uh, from adult to babies uh, and from one culture to another, uh, ear by comparing but sometimes by just hearing other people speaking about us, is something I'm obsessed by, I guess, for the last 20 years. Who are some documentary filmmakers that either inspired you early in your career or that, you, that you've been uh, affected by over the course of your career? Well, uh, you were mentioning Albert Maisel, and Salesman is definitely one of the best documentaries I've ever seen, and which really what made me feel like doing documentaries when I was young. Has anybody uh, seen Salesman uh, in the audience here? Yeah. Highly recommend it, please. And uh, Grey Garden is also a fantastic, fantastic film. Uh, I have to say that I'm closer from Maisel than from uh, Wiseman, even if I really like his work. But I, I, I tend to be more uh, cautious about the audience. And, uh, <laughs> and you think uh, Wiseman is not cautious about his audience? I don't think so. <laughs> and I think it's great. But I feel closer from uh, Maisel when Wiseman can do an eight-hour film, a four-hour film on something. Really, and He's great great, fantastic, and he broke so much, but there is something maybe a little bit too radical compared to my way of filmmaking. I'm much more really like, and there is some kind of comedy aspect in all of my films, even the one about this Nokia factory in China that I really want to keep on having, you know? Uh, if there is no some comedy aspect in my films, I cannot edit it. I cannot spend time filming it, editing it, and even thinking about it. And I'm just having many screenings since I arrived in the States since a few days. In fact, I've been stuck here much longer because of the Vulcano. And so uh, I'm doing more promotion than I was supposed to. But uh, it's such a pleasure for a filmmaker to like people laughing. You know, you, you've been laughing a little bit, but the whole theme, I think, is a real comedy and is really like, as you say in America, a feel-good movie. And I'm fine with that, you know, which is not something which could be shared as a goal 
among many documentary filmmakers. But I feel totally fine with this aspect of my films. And I always, always am concerned about that. I really try to have as much uh, people watching my films and content. Uh, I, I think you can combine it all without being too radical. Um, I want to let the audience ask some questions. So let's okay. turn to the audience. And if you have a question, raise your hand. Um, so outside of what is shown in the film, were there times where you felt, um, or where you talked more to the parents, or even where you felt tempted to interact more with the babies or with the families than we see? In fact, as soon as you interact or you expect something or you're trying to set up something, this is going to be seen and this is going to be obvious and this is going to be disappointing and you, it's in, uninteresting, it's boring. So uh, I, I never interacted there, I never interacted in any of my other films. I think it can be done maybe on some kind of filmmaking and, uh, and I'm not speaking generally about documentary filmmaking but with the kind of filmmaking I'm doing, it doesn't work. It's the same thing with narration. I think there are great films maybe with some narrations, but I'm very bad with that. And I really love to work with that narration, you know. It takes much more time, you know. This is, I started in 2005, and we're speaking now of me doing films for the last 20 years, and I've done only six films. So it's complicated. But uh, I'm really lucky that I could many people all over the world who like my work and allow me to spend that much time on each film. Uh, so uh, I, I'm, I'm bad as a to set up things or ask people to do things. But mm, I'm sure it might work, but I cannot do it. Thank you. There was another one. Yeah. I'm just curious um, as to how you went about filming. Were you going maybe like three weeks in San Francisco, three weeks in Armenia, and three weeks in Tokyo, three weeks in Armenia? And were you the only cameraman that was shooting the entire film? Yeah. It's, I, I, I mean, I've been shooting over a period of two years 400 days, a bit more, uh, so it's exactly almost what you described. Uh, most of the time I would not spend more than two weeks in the same location, because first there was not that much happening and I, I could get bored after a while, uh, so it was good to move from one country to another. And then secondly, I have myself three kids, uh, we're like very young, seven, five and three, and, I, and a wife, and I needed to see the four of them once in a while. It was not that much, but during that time of the shooting, I don't know if you realize that I saw more of these four kids than my own babies. So this was very difficult for me to really deal with all this issue and uh, still being motivated and going there. Um, so uh, you, you have to include all that in how you're, you're working. And, and sometimes I had to go from one country to another and to another, and it was like a one month period of shooting, but I tried as much as I could not to spend more than two weeks in each country. Next question, all the way over here to your right. Hi, I'm a mom of two, and every time I watch the trailer, I recognize something in my own children. Um, you mentioned at the beginning that you were having a baby during this process, and I'm just wondering if after you spent more time with these four kids than your own, if your parenting skills changed, or if you and your wife view babies differently. Well, uh, one of the big things I realized during that film and spending so much time in Namibia and Mongolia, watching these kids spending days playing with a toilet paper roll and having a lot of fun with it, it's not in the trailer, but you, you'll see it in the film, or like just watching flies or just like playing with a goat or like with a cat, that uh, they are like very happy getting bored sometimes and just like playing with them by themselves. 
And our concern maybe here or in Paris or in the Western world about like overstimulating our kids and speaking about the best aspect of education or Western education might be a bit too much sometimes. You know, I, when my first daughter was born, I, I was like reading exactly like the American mother, reading her books in the morning when she was a few weeks old, then uh, bringing her very young age to uh, dance lessons and piano lessons and tennis lessons and everything, you know, like not leaving any space for them to just, okay, get bored, you know? And so uh, exactly like the American family in the film or the Japanese family. So I guess I'm trying to change that and really spend more time with them, me with them, with no, nothing in between us. And uh, I finished that film like almost one year ago and, and also trying to just spend time physically with them in Paris and just, uh, so this, you know, you have to, to balance all that. But there was a lot of things I knew, but um, it's true that spending so many, so many days with them and experiencing it, you, it, took, it took a bigger, bigger space in my mind that children need to get bored and, and we should leave them some space to get bored, I think. Another question over here, same side. Hi, I was just wondering, were there any babies that didn't make it into the film but might make it into the DVD? Uh, babies, no, but scenes, yes, definitely. There, there, there would be a whole film to be done about the Mongolian baby. Uh, is absolutely, I mean, they're all fascinating, but first of all, uh, I'd spend more time filming in Namibia and Mongolia, of course, because I mean, I was less disturbing their private life, but also he's a fantastic character, and the relationship with his brother was like every day something was happening. You know, they, they had like. You, you will see it in the film, but the, the, this is the main interest of this country baby. This baby in that country is like, he has an older brother, and it was very difficult for his older brother to see him arriving in the family. And they're like tough time, the two of them together. And this created amazing scenes. We put a few in the film, but we have many others, which definitely are going to be in the DVD extra bonuses. He gave you a real antagonist. I mean, he's really provoking his younger brother. I mean, he's like really provoking him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There were a couple. Oh, yeah. Hi. Uh, I would like to know if, like, you you follow like more than four babies, and then you shoot like only those four babies, or you follow those four babies, like expecting that at the end it would be like the good choices. Uh, at the very beginning, we are like two babies in each country. Uh, and then very quickly, uh, I just stopped shooting two babies. It only lasted a few days. Very quickly, I was sure about which one I would keep. Then there was a fifth country, which finally I didn't keep shooting after six months. Uh, because uh, the life and the relationship in between the parents was not that good. And this would have given to the film a kind of total different meaning and uh, I didn't want to get away from seeing these babies growing up and when the parents were taking too much space in the story I felt it was not appropriate anymore so this is why at the end we were thinking of maybe having five and we only ended up with four and I'm very happy I did that because already four divided when you're like a 90 minutes film divided by four characters at the end I think you need that time you're spending with, with each baby to connect with them. So I think it would, have, it would have been too much to have five, and I'm very happy to end it up with four babies. There were a couple up in the front, I think. Yes, up here. So my question is that working so closely with all these families, did you find yourself emotionally connected at all in any way, or 
in certain instances wanting to interfere and things happening, stuff like that. Like It's funny, interfering is something which is coming a lot, and not only from you, but from many journalists, and I never felt like interfering at all. Uh, what is for sure is I feel very strong connections and bonds with all these four families, and I'm keeping in touch with them since I finished the shooting, and I even went there last Christmas to show them the film and spend some time. And I think I'm going to try to do that for the next as much as long as I can. Uh, they're like almost part of the families, you know. We've, I've been spending so much time with them, uh, and I really get along well with the four of these families. Uh, but interfering, absolutely never, never. You know, uh, you know, you know. There are some scenes, and you will see in the film where you have the Mongolian babies playing in the middle of a cattle, and you, it might seem dangerous from a Western perspective. But everything seems so natural when I was there, and everybody seems and the parents were watching the scene and they were not that concerned about what was going on that I felt, okay, it's cool. Uh, I shouldn't be concerned myself. And everything went fine. And you had like 50 cows coming to the baby, you know? It's terrifying uh, at it's times. Terrifying. This movie is nearly a horror movie, like multiple <laughs> times where there's like stampedes of animals or, or you think that a rooster is going to crush this child. I mean, the there's dogs. just anything can happen. I mean, the, I don't, the dog scene? <laughs> Obviously, I don't have children, but it's like, it seems like they're, it's, the incredible fragility of these... The safety, safety issues is really something which is being worked up here and people are really amazed by what the kids are doing and they're all doing fine, playing with big dogs and, and whatever, even cats all the time. Eating dirt, licking dogs. I mean, it's like literally, like, and there's so much. I mean, it's amazing. It's obviously amazing how much in Western culture, especially now, you see parents or friends of mine who are parents and, and the lengths they go to protect their children from like the slightest harm. And but, but I, I have a kind of feeling that, because it's something I want to make clear, like, and you didn't see the film, the, the audience, but don't do that. Like, I want to give the message, don't do that with your own babies. You know, it's just like, because, I mean, these babies in Mongolia and Namibia or whatever, they've been growing up together, you know, since they were born and the kind of relationship, they know what to do, not what to do. But I would never myself put my kid in the middle of a cattle, you know, no way. And I think this would be kind of dangerous. But there, it worked well. And they're like really so cautious, and everything is going so smoothly. It's amazing, but don't repeat the same thing at home. Definitely. Don't try this. At I home. don't want to okay. be sued, you know. <laughs> well, I saw it in the film. I tried to do it. And was there another question up? Was that "mama" the first word that that child spelled? Excuse me, I didn't the get mama. When the Mongolian child said "mama, mama," it's, it's, it's one of the very first time he was ever. And you can see it on his face. He's almost amazed himself about what he's doing, you know. And you have like many things like that. The whole idea was there to be there at all these first times, all the time. So to be that, to do that, you just need time, which is quite unusual. You need just to, to spend a lot of time watching these babies. And there is another scene which you're going to see in the film, which is one of my favorite, when he's been doing something bad, like, like just putting some water on the ground, and, and then the mother is coming, and for the very first time, he's being spanked. Very gently spanked, gen very, very softly, but first time ever. You should see his face. It's just like amazing, you know, and it's a very long shot. I think all of it is three minutes, and I love it. You know, this is like, uh, this is why I'm keeping on doing documentaries, because all of the scene and the water falling down and him playing with his brother and the mom coming and then him being spanked, and the way he's looking at his mom, I think is to me exactly the definition of documentary filmmaking. You can really not do that again or find anyone to do it for you, you know? Uh, and I love that. And I, I find it very moving and interesting. 
You can read so much on the expressions of these kids. I mean, literally the expression will change over the course of a three-minute scene. Yeah. It's really dramatic to watch. It's kind of fascinating to, to, to feel, because I'm thinking about that, uh, that this same Bayard Jargal was like, usually was older Mongolian kids do spend a lot of time by themselves and are very shy and don't speak that much. You know, like his older brother, when I arrived, he didn't say a word to me for weeks and weeks. Very lately, he started to speak to me. But Bayard Jackal being so much used of having us being there, that is the most talkative Mongolian baby you can find almost, you know, because he had like so many people around him. And I came back in December and he's so talkative and so funny. And that's great to feel that you had a good influence on someone, you know, and being so present. His parents might not like it later when he doesn't stop talking to him. But <laughs> that's fine. That'd be. <laughs> that'd be. We have time for two more questions. Okay, two more from the audience. Anyone? I have a couple more, if not. Uh, down here and in the third row. So we'll go, we'll go here. Uh, the second row, third row, sorry. And then up here. I was just going to say, how did you choose the audio? Like, some of the clips that was just the natural noise happening in the scene and then some was music. Yeah, this is a music question was a crucial question, and I definitely didn't want to have some kind of nap which would take like 10 minutes on the film and would be like taking too much space. So uh, we had uh, the big chance to work with Bruno Coulet, who is really a fantastic composer, and, uh, and he understood very quickly what uh, I was looking for and, and uh, the kind of subtle... Uh, presence of music that you have only, I would say, in the transition moments. But basically, all these long shots, which are the core of the film, are left with natural sound. So there is like a score, but it's not that much. I would say maybe the whole of it is maybe 20, 30 minutes, you know. And it's not taking too much space, and you almost don't hear it. And he, he created a language, almost. He wrote some songs which doesn't don't have any meaning, you know. And there is a singer which is like kind of doing real things that you don't know exactly what it is, which is a kind of baby talk almost. And it's playing perfectly on the film, you know, it's like very, very nice. So, um, uh, so, so the music thing was a big thing. We needed it, having no narration and absolutely no dialogue. There was no way we could have done it with that. For such a wide distribution, there could be a version also without any, but I'm not sure it would work that well. <laughs> But uh, no, Bruno Coulet has been doing a fantastic work. And, uh, and, uh, and the music you hear, the air is at the end of the film, and it's Sufjan Stevens. It's also a brilliant idea from James Schemers, who, who proposed us to do that. He, he came up with that fantastic idea, I think, because everybody is mentioning it on the, yeah. on the internet. You have like so many people, well, what a great music. Yeah. So I just had a quick question for you about the agreements that you had with the families, and I guess the agreements that you had with the family about how long it would take, what your intentions were, and sort of the, I guess specifically would be for the Japanese and for the Americans, which probably you would have uh, interfered more with their schedules and their daily life and how, whatever they're up to. So what, what did you agree to? Did, did they set the terms in terms of how long you could shoot, when you could shoot, that kind of thing? Uh, totally. There was like a very real contract with them, uh, like speaking about like, we should, you should respect this and that and all that. I'm not sure about the details of this contract. And the reality, uh, we never looked into the detail of the contract. And the reality, I had to see and to feel when I was really starting to disturb them uh, and, and really to be re really respectful. They were like, the American family, for example, the nap thing and the sleeping thing of the baby was very like, it was like, 
not one minute after, you know, it was like this time sharp, she must be in the bed sleeping, you know. So it was very difficult and tough for me and I had to negotiate almost on daily basis, okay, a frame, can we go there, can we come here? So uh, whatever contract you have, it's only a kind of first idea, but in the reality on daily basis, this had to be renegotiated. It, it was very tough, but at the end we ended up having great scenes nevertheless. Um, but it's true that it was much simpler, even if we had exactly the same contract with four families, uh, but in Mongolia and Namibia, uh, I could virtually spend 12 hours without disturbing anyone. And you would be surprised how little nap these kids were doing. You know, like uh, very, very early stage, they were absolutely not doing a, any nap at all and just running everywhere when still the American baby and the Japanese baby were spending like four, like my kids, uh, three, four hours sleeping every afternoon. It's incredible. It's absolutely not universal, the nap thing, you know. It's <laughs> nap thing. Um, let me ask you one more question before we wrap up. I was thinking a lot as you've been talking about the relationship between a documentarian and a subject, and I wonder what you think, on a general perspective as a documentary filmmaker, what you think is the re responsibility of a documentary filmmaker to his or her subject, and how well, that dictates the relationship you develop with that subject. Well, I mean, it's kind of uh, one of my, um, you were speaking about the people I do like in the documentary industry, and one of them is... Uh, Viktor Kosakovsky, who is a fantastic Russian filmmaker, and who says you cannot be both a good human being and a good filmmaker, documentary filmmaker. To be a good documentary filmmaker, you have to be bad with the subject, and you have to, to not maybe always listen to what they want and how much they want to be respected. So, in a way, is right. In a way, I think it's a very, very, very fragile relationship. There needs, there needs to be tension. Almost. There needs to be tension, and you need to push them above what they would allow you to do on the paper or like first idea. But then you shouldn't do that too much, and it should be also something where at the end, they're maybe not always going to love the film, but they should not be cheated, you know? So it's a kind of very complicated line, which is like, shouldn't be too much... Uh, telling, doing what they want you to do, but you should not be too brutal either. But um, I, I, I'm not sure as I'm such a good filmmaker as he is, and uh, maybe I'm trying to compose more and to, to, to be in between. <laughs> well, I, I invite everyone here to check out the film and those listening on iTunes as well. Um, it, it raises a lot of questions and answers as well about birth, death, life in between, um, and also about documentary filmmaking. So, What it Thomas, means to be a human being yeah, today. Tomah, thank you for being with us today. My pleasure. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much to Tomah Balmez. Don't forget, it is Tribeca. We have things happening all week, events happening all the time, and you can find out all that information on our website at apple.com forward slash retail forward slash Tribeca. And now we even have it available for your mobile device as well. So if you have an iPod Touch or an iPhone, you can download for free the Tribeca Film Festival app, which is actually really cool. It has all sorts of events, not just the ones at the Apple Store, but throughout the entire event. Schedules for everything, directions to all the locations, and you can even pick the ones you're most interested in and make a customized itinerary for the week. So definitely check that out. Thank you very much for coming again. Everybody get home safe and have a wonderful evening.